Hello and welcome back to Talking Sense, the podcast, the podcast version of the Talking Sense Interdisciplinary Research Project 2018-19, held in conjunction with the Ashmolean Museum, looking at the way that senses interact with the museum and with art. In the first episode of this podcast series, we discussed the aims and goals of the project. And in the second episode, Christy and I gave you an introduction of what it was like to go to a workshop day. In the following few episodes, we'll be hearing recordings of the gallery talks, which were the culmination of the project. In this episode, we'll be hearing from Johnny Lawrence, who is the co-producer of this podcast series, and he's a default candidate in Arabic literature. His talk partner was Shan Witherden, who's a default candidate in the Department of English, and the title of their paired gallery talk was Sensory Intoxication, Getting Drunk from Oxford to Iran. Between medieval Oxford and modern Iran, Sean and Johnny will walk you through how drunkenness and intoxication play a big role in the visual culture of the senses and our understanding of how the body interacts with the outside world. And in this episode, you'll be hearing Johnny's recorded gallery talk, where he'll be talking about tiles from Iran. Hello, my name is Johnny Lawrence. My talk was about some Iranian tiles, depicting the story of Yusuf Uzaleikha, a classic tale of love from the... Well, from the Quran, but also from the 15th century text by Jami. In this talk, I'll be looking at the idea of being drunk in love. To hear more about drunkenness, I would suggest going to my paired talk, Sean Witherden's talk on the puzzle jug from medieval Oxford. I would like to begin by just telling you a quote from one of my favourite medieval Islamic theologians, Ibn Qayyim al-Jawziya. I say favourite, not quite. He's very severe. The glance, the look, the gaze. It is but a cup of wine, the alcohol of which is what we call love. In thinking about the idea of intoxication and drunkenness, we usually imagine alcohol straight away. Indeed, if you listen to Sean's talk, you will have heard a lot about the physical and social element that alcohol and alcoholic intoxication played in medieval England. However, to pick up the idea of being drunk generally, let us think about Beyonce's song, Drunk in Love. In that song, what does she really mean when she's drunk in love? What does it mean to use the word drunk, the idea of intoxication, from a substance other than alcohol? How might that be represented in art and literature? And specifically for this talk, in these tiles. The tiles themselves, of which you can see a photo on the website, come from the Qajar period of Iranian history which is a rather great but particularly neglected period for the study of Persian art. Depictions of scenes from Persian literature and history were very popular in the Qajar period, but they tend to be rather overpopulated. There's a lot going on in all the artworks. The Qajar dynasty ruled Iran between the 18th and 19th century and spent a lot of time and money redeveloping and expanding both the country and their new capital city, Tehran. In previous centuries and dynasties, the cities of Shiraz and Esfahan were both the commercial and cultural centres of Iran, but it was only in the Qajar era that Tehran rose to the prominence with which we associate it today. Tiles such as these were a very common form of household decoration, and based on similar tiles with similar patterns and motifs, these were almost certainly interior decoration for a potentially well-off Iranian household in Tehran in the 19th century. Perhaps, however, they were just made for their purchasers. They could be made for a British family of tourists in Iran in the same period. It's impossible for us to tell at this point because we don't have all the details. Because of the brilliant and remarkable pictorial and decorative quality, we actually know the tiles are not that exceptional. 
You might think, oh, they look so beautiful, they must have been to adorn some sort of palace. But no, almost certainly just on a mantelpiece in a fairly regular home. Now, in the talk, should you have been able to make it to the Ashmolean, I'd have asked you at this point to take three steps back and then to take three steps forward. The point of that is to get a, an understanding of the perspectives on the tiles. In order to explain that for you, I'm going to say that they are not flat. Where on the images you can see women and one man, although it's uh, difficult to tell from just an image, their grooves and 3D sort of juttings out from the tiles. But when you take a big step back, they almost look flat again. This is a kind of trick of perspective that is very different to ways of individuating and differentiating bodies than we have in Western art. Certainly this is no girl with the pearl earring looking directly at you either. These women are all looking at each other, they're looking at the main man in the middle, Yusuf, the prophet. So where they're not transfixed at you, the audience member they're transfixed at him, is actually a scene in the middle of the panel. And these panels themselves are framed like theatres, like a theatre. They are with curtains at the top, which really separates you out. There's almost like a window frame, or as I say, a, a, the audience looking at the theatre scene. We are very separated from this scene. It is happening in front of us, beyond where we can reach. There is a blue glaze which runs across the scene. Personally, I think this looks a bit like perfume through the air. It gives a rather dappled quality, suggesting maybe scent which is going through. Now, what is going on? Let's have a think about the story. These tiles, as I said, show the story of Yusuf Zuleikha. But what is that story? Well, you probably are all aware of either the biblical or Quranic narrative. Biblical narrative, of course, being Joseph and Potiphar's wife. I'll be taking leave of the biblical narrative here. It's a little bit different from the Quranic one. Basically, the story is roughly the same in terms of what happens to Yusuf. However, there is a few extra narrative scenes, and one of them is the scene that's being depicted on this tile which is a big scene of a feast. The Qur'an itself has very few narrative scenes, unlike the Bible. However, the story of Yusuf, Joseph, is the longest and most detailed. There's a whole surah or chapter on this um, story. Just as in the Bible, he is sold into slavery and he is beloved by the wife of an Egyptian official who would come to be named Zuleikha. She would come to be named Zuleikha in later Islamic interpretations of the Qur'an, although her name is not actually mentioned in the Qur'an. Obviously, Mary is the only, or Maryam is the only woman mentioned. In the story, after Yusuf is imprisoned, the women of Memphis chatter and gossip and create rumours about Zuleikha, chastising her for falling in love with her slave. Yet, they have not seen Yusuf in the flesh. Now, what you must know is that in the Islamic narrative, God allotted two-thirds of all the beauty in the world to Yusuf. Unfair, I know. So Zuleikha invited all the women to her palace and prepared a banquet for them, providing them with oranges and knives with which they could cut the oranges, obviously. Upon their receipt of the knives, she presents Yusuf to them, all doled up, looking amazing. And the women fall about, swooning and fainting. They cut their wrists with the knives they have been given, such as their inability to sense the world around them. Just as Ibn Qayyim al Jawziyah said, they would. They have become drunk on the wine of love through their sight of Yusuf. I'm going to return to this idea of drunkenness at the end of this talk, but just quickly. The story in the Qur'an does not include any oranges and is certainly not as sensuous as the depiction we have here. Zuleikha is no tragic heroine in the Qur'anic account worthy of depiction at all. 
Instead, after the writing of such seminal works of literature as Nizami's Farhad al-Shirin or Ferdowsi's Shahnameh, which retell and often reimagine scenes from ancient Iranian history, poets also took on reimaginings of Quranic and biblical narratives. Jami, a 15th century poet, Sufi master and follower of Ibn Arabi, or, well, not personally, obviously, he died a lot longer afterwards, reimagined this recounting of the story in the Qur'an, turning it into an extended epic poem depicting their childhoods, their dreams and meetings, the tragic love of Zuleikha for her slave Yusuf, his conversion of the women of Memphis to Islam, and her eventual realisation of the transience and impermanence of external forms, and her love for truth, al-haq, by which we mean allegorically God, in the body of Yusuf, their eventual marriage and then the happy ending. This forms part of a much larger body of writing, which we tend to call Sufi love narratives. I'm not going to linger on this point now, um, but it is worth reading the, re looking at the reading list in the show notes to see where I have uh, indicated you might find out more about Sufi reimaginings of classic stories. Jami's narrative of the love of Yusuf and Zuleikha became an extremely important manuscript text. There's many copies and lots of illustrations, and a well-known cultural reference point in early modern Iran. In Qajar Iranian art, so art from this period, the depiction of historical and literary reference points, like the story of Yusuf and Zuleikha, Majnun Leili, Khosro Shirin, was extremely common in all forms of art. And this is like uh, Mughal art from the same period. There's lots of tiles, manuscript illuminations, and coins, which all bear this out, this uh, decorative and figural uh, artistic style. Whilst this story is traditionally regarded as an allegorical story about Sufi love and virtue, in modern literature, we must not forget that this is a story which is happening to bodies. It is a story which portrays bodies through the available social imagination of the time, both the 15th century narrative, the Quranic narrative, and indeed the modern reimagining on the Qajar tiles. This passion and this drunkenness is depicted both in these tiles and in the text as a very real corporeal and sensory engagement with an emotion, love. So back to drunkenness and the senses. What is going on in these tiles? As I say, Shan talked about the very real drunkenness that alcohol induces in our bodies. We think of it as a physical state, which leaves us slurring our speech, hazy vision, dizzy. Perhaps it affects our mood, leaving us more emotional or not thinking clearly, making us more daring, perhaps, or more revelatory. These are very sensory reactions to alcohol, but very physical ones too. It's an ingested intoxicant and it affects our bodies. There is a very clear link between external stimulus and internal change. But to return to the quotation I gave you at the start about the look causing drunkenness, this is the same kind of embodiment of emotional engagement that we have here. The women are so overcome by the sight of Yusuf, which leads them to fall in love with him, that they mistake the oranges for their hands and cut their own flesh. This sensory misreading of the world is indeed the crux of the concept of drunkenness as it goes beyond being drunk off alcohol. Being intoxicated, these women struggle to read the world around them. They literally cannot distinguish between their own bodies and an external object. This affects their sight, their understanding of consciousness, the assumed painful and tactile aspect of cutting. Let us further examine the depiction of wrist cutting in a cultural and historical setting. Throughout Arabic and Persian religious sources, intoxication is defined as a state in which reason departs the mind, and people find it impossible to distinguish between different things. Ahmad ibn Hanbal, one of the most prominent Islamic jurists of all time, and indeed the person after whom the Hanbali Sunni legal school is named, said that in order to de describe drunkenness or to define drunkenness, he suggested that it is a state in which man cannot tell the difference between his coat and that of someone else, or his shoe and that of someone else. 
A Shafi'i, another jurist who set up another legal school, said something very similar. So we have this legal definition and legal idea of drunkenness and intoxication being a lack of distinction between different things. Now taking this further and looking back at the tiles, let us think about those bodies. They cannot literally distinguish between their wrist and an orange. They have lost their power of distinction so much that they are almost disembodied from themselves because of their intoxication. We can see that intoxication is a total sensory alteration of the way the mind and the body work collectively. It transforms how the body is perce perceives the outside world. But we may think of our emotions, our bodies and our senses as being discrete things, which permeate our existence but do not necessarily interact in the same way. Certainly we have a Cartesian split in our own understanding of the mind and the body, being separate things which work on different sensory planes. We do retain words like heartbreak to connect, connote some kind of physical or bodily response to emotion, but we tend to think of emotions as being a primarily mental state of being. But here we have embodied emotions. The women see the boy in love, or Yusuf in love, boy's a bit rude. This image affects their emotions to such a great extent that they become sensorially drunk on love. Their emotions have clouded their mind to such an extent that they now fail to perceive the world around them correctly, leading them to be unable to distinguish between their own wrists and the oranges they once held in their hands. The emotions have also clouded their sensory registers. They do not suffer the pain of this cutting, for they are still so overcome with the original image of beauty before them. Their bodies play an important role in this emotion-sense crossover. Love, becoming a form of drunkenness, entails a bodily and sensory reaction to an emotional state. This is emotion-sense body as a whole nexus of pleasure and pain. For further reading about this podcast and all of the podcasts in this series, please see the attached bibliographies in the show notes. Music for the show was by David Hillowitz, Moment of Truth piano version, provided by freemusicarchive.org. This podcast was presented, edited and produced by me, Christy Calloway-Gale. And me, Johnny Lawrence. Thank you for listening. Goodbye.